The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Vince Lombardi is best known as the coach of the Green Bay Packers. Sorry for starting off with that phrase for you guys. Um, A team that won three straight and five total championships in the National Football League during the 60s. So his team won the first two Super Bowls at the end of the 66 and 67 regular seasons. He suddenly died of cancer in 1970, and the NFL named the Super Bowl trophy after him. So you've heard of the Vince Lombardi trophy. It's named after him. So back up nine years, July 1961, Lombardi is meeting with his his, uh, team for training camp. It's their first time back together after losing the championship game the previous season. And this is what he says. These are professional, elite athletes. And uh, one of his biographers writes this. Uh, He took nothing for granted. He began a tradition of starting from scratch, assuming that the players were blank slates who carried over no knowledge from the year before. He began with the most elemental statement of all. Gentlemen, he said, holding a pigskin in his right hand, this is a football. You heard that story before? This is a football. I mean, he's talking to professional football players. Do you think they were insulted? I don't think so. Uh, what he's doing is, is actually masterful. He's not insulting them. He's starting with the fundamentals. It's wise to remind each other about the fundamentals. And that's why our church has this tradition of beginning each year with the first two Sundays to, to focus on prayer and scripture, to start with the fundamentals. It, it's a way to recalibrate our lives to make sure we're keeping the main thing the main thing. So as Vince Lombardi said to professional football players, gentlemen, this is a football, I say to you, brothers and sisters, this is a Bible. So what I plan to do now in this sermon is answer two fundamental questions. What is this Bible and how should we treat it? This is an unusual sermon because I'm not explaining and applying just one passage of Scripture. I am presenting a condensed, systematic theology of the Bible and how we should live in light of that. In other words, I'm proclaiming what the whole Bible says about itself and how we should treat it. So let's start with the first question. What is the Bible? And I have six statements to share with you here. Number one, the Bible is God-breathed. You have your Bibles open to 2 Timothy 3.16. Look again at that first sentence. The first phrase says, all Scripture is it's breathed out by God. As the NIV says, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired. Now, that does not mean that the human authors were not actively involved in this process. So God didn't dictate the whole Bible the way that an executive might dictate a letter to his executive. The human author's personalities are more like musical instruments. So I I grew up playing the trumpet. If I were to uh, play the tune Amazing Grace on the trumpet it would sound different than if I played it on a baritone or a tuba or a valve trombone or a French horn, even if I played it in the same key, because it's going through the personality of that instrument. I know that analogy breaks down, but what it's communicating is that when God breathes out his word, it goes through the personalities of the humans who wrote it, and not just their personalities. It includes their skills, their training, even their research, as the beginning of the Gospel of Luke says. So, Trick question for you. I like to ask this to my systematic theology students. Who wrote the Bible? God or humans? Careful. Maybe you shouldn't answer that question out loud. Uh, Who wrote the Bible? God or humans? And the answer is 
Yes. All right. There's this confluence, this relationship. It's a fully human and a fully divine book. Now turn in your Bible to 2 Peter 1 to complement what we just saw in 2 Timothy 3. 2 Peter 1 is presenting the method of this God-breathed scripture. What we just saw in in 2 Timothy 3.16 is the nature. Here's the method. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Why is that? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So is the Bible the product of human invention? No, no, it says right here. The writers didn't think up what they wrote on their own. They spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So God breathed out the scriptures. He carried along humans to write it, to write exactly what the Holy Spirit intended. And is, is that the case for just some of scripture? Remember 2 Timothy 3.16? What's the first word? All scripture is God-breathed, all of it. And this is the case for the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm gonna give you some highlights about how the Bible speaks about itself. In the Old Testament, the Lord repeatedly speaks directly to Moses in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. Isaiah quotes the word of the Lord over a dozen times. Jeremiah and Ezekiel say, the word of the Lord came to me over 100 times. Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Micah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, each opened by announcing the word of the Lord came to me. Daniel recounts visions from God. Malachi writes, says the Lord 25 times. And the most important example of all in scripture is Jesus himself. Jesus repeatedly quotes the Old Testament as his final authority. It is written. It is written. It is written. Have you never read in the scriptures? You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The, 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 the scripture cannot be broken. Over and over, he's affirming the authority of the New Testament. And Jesus believes that the miracles that the Old Testament recounts actually happened So he refers to Jonah in the belly of a huge fish for three days and three nights and to Noah's flood and Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt and Moses and the burning bush and manna in the wilderness and on and on. And it's not just Jesus. All of the New Testament authors refer to the Old Testament repeatedly in this way. They they refer to it as God's words. Romans 3, Paul calls it the oracles of God, the oracles of God. The the New Testament authors regard the writings even of other New Testament authors as equally authoritative as the Old Testament and the words of Christ. We see this in 1 Timothy 5 and in 2 Peter 3. They recognize that their writings reveal God's plan more fully than the Old Testament. Read Ephesians 2 and 3, Hebrews 1 and 2. So the Bible is God-breathed. That's our first statement. The next two flow from that one. Second, the Bible is entirely true. It's without error, that is inerrant, and it's incapable of error, that is infallible. So follow this logic. I'm going to give you two premises, a major premise, a minor premise, and then a conclusion that follows from it. So here's the the, the major premise. God is entirely truthful. So God is without error, he's inerrant, and he's incapable of error, he's infallible. So I'm thinking of passages like in Titus that say God cannot lie. So God is entirely true. That's the first premise. Number two is the one we just looked at. The Bible is God-breathed. So if God is entirely true 
and the Bible is God-breathed, what follows? Therefore, the Bible is entirely truthful. It's without error and incapable of error. Since the Bible is God-breathed, God is a liar if it contains errors. The Bible is the standard of truthfulness, the very standard. Jesus said to God the Father, your word is truth. Your word is truth. The Bible is entirely true because God is entirely true. Now, whenever theologians speak this way, people have objections and and clarifications are in order. So I have four clarifications to share with you. Number one, the Bible's inerrancy does not mean, number one, that it's truthful only with reference to theology. It's not a, a textbook for social, physical, or life science, but it's fully trustworthy about whatever it says about any subject. If you can't fully trust the Bible when it talks about science and history, which are secondary matters that we can verify, how can you trust the Bible when it talks about God and salvation, which are supremely important matters that we can't verify in the same way? So if you can't trust the Bible, you can't trust God, and if you don't trust God, you've exalted yourself as the ultimate authority instead of God. Number two, the Bible's inerrancy does not mean that it is always precise. Here's what I mean. So the Bible's origin is both fully divine and fully human. And though it never affirms what is false, it has the marks of a human book. Humans wrote it with human personalities in human languages in the context of human cultures. So just like today, I'll show you this. So if I pull up an app on my phone, weather.com app, here we go. Scroll down, look at this. It says sunrise, 7.50 a.m., sunset, 4.51 p.m. Some people treat the Bible like I'm about to treat this app. That's ridiculous. That's scientifically false. Everyone knows the sun doesn't rise or set. The earth revolves around the sun. The sun's not setting and rising. What folly. What a stupid app. Like that, if, that's how some people treat the Bible. But no, no, that's this phenomenological language that we all use. It's normal human language, and we know what we mean by it, and it's okay to use it. The Bible has that sort of thing in it all the time. Similarly, in our conversations, I might say to one of you, so uh, how far away do you live from here? And they say, you know, five miles. And then you go research and find out it was actually 4.75 miles. So they're liars, right? Or you say to someone, how old are you? I'm 22. When you do some research, they're 22 in 175 days and three hours and five minutes and three seconds. They were lying, right? No, we, we speak in certain ways. It's just normal human language, and the Bible speaks that way as well. So when you see that in the Bible, that doesn't mean it's committing an error. It's, it's a fully human book, and it's speaking in reasonable, ordinary human language. We should give the Bible, the Bible's human authors, the same freedom we routinely give each other to speak that way. Second clarification, the Bible's inerrancy does not mean that number three, number three, copies of the original writings or translations of those copies are inerrant. So copies of the Bible and translations of the Bible are inerrant, they're without error, only to the extent that they accurately reproduce the original writings. So God breathed out the original writings, humans copied them and translated them. And this, this, distinction I'm making it is very important because if you see an error in a, in a copy or an error in a translation, it's not God's fault. It's the fault of finite and sinful humans. And you might be wondering, well, what, what good is it if only the original writings are God-breathed and we don't, we don't possess those original writings? 
Well, a lot of good, actually. Uh, it overstates the case to make it sound like we don't really know what the original writings say because the quality of the Bible's existing manuscripts are unbelievably high, better than any other ancient literature. Consequently, the existing manuscripts and translations faithfully reproduce over 99% of the Bible's original writings, and, and most of that 1% left over that's questionable is about trivial matters, like how do you spell someone's name or, or synonyms or obviously impossible readings. And of that 1% that's questionable, only about 1% affects the text's meaning to some degree, and none of that affects any major doctrines. Number four, the Bible's inerrancy does not mean that there are no remaining difficulties or apparent discrepancies. We can't perfectly interpret the Bible for at least two reasons. One, we don't have all the data relevant to understanding the Bible. For example, archaeology is continually discovering uh, new facts. And second, we're finite and we're sinful and we misinterpret the data we already have. So we, we can't demonstrate the Bible's inerrancy to everyone's satisfaction until all the facts are available and perfect interpretation is possible. Until then, what's the proper response we should have? It's to trust that what the all-knowing, all-good God has spoken is completely true. Number three, the Bible is our final authority. Jesus himself appeals to the Bible as the final authority. He thus affirms it's entirely true. John 10, 35, Scripture cannot be broken. Scripture cannot be broken. God has supreme authority since he created and controls the universe. And if the Bible's God-breathed, it carries the authority of God himself. And it's not the final authority merely for faith and practice, as, as some doctrinal statements will say. It's the final authority for every domain of knowledge it addresses. It's supremely authoritative. It's like no other book. So if you don't trust or obey the Bible, you are distrusting or disobeying God. It's that serious. And that's why Protestant reformers uh, call this sola scriptura. Now, it can be misleading when you say scripture alone. We don't, we don't say that means the Bible's our only authority. I use the word final here, not only. Like if you want to find a, an authority on trigonometry, you're probably going to need more than just the Bible. Right, so there, there are other accesses to truth than just the Bible. But the Bible is unique in that it's the final authority, the, the, the sole authority that is, that is without error and incapable of error, and it's the final, ultimate, supreme authority. Number four, the Bible is enough. The Bible is enough. So I grew up Mormon, uh, sort of. Uh, hundreds of relatives on my mom's side are faithful uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I, I grew up in that context for up the first five or six years of my life, and then uh, my family left Mormonism when I was about six. So I've studied Mormonism uh, a fair bit to try to understand what I might have embraced, and I've found that the most fundamental issue that divides Mormons and evangelicals is what we believe about the Bible and about authority. So this dividing line is, is not unique to Mormons and evangelicals. It's pretty much the dividing line between all other religions and evangelicals, and that's because we hold uncommon beliefs about this holy book. The Bible does not directly answer every question people can ask, but it is sufficient for its purpose. The purpose of the Bible is to know and obey God. It's all we need to know and trust and obey him. It reveals the God of the gospel so that we can know and honor him, and the Bible is alone sufficient for that. 
Its supreme authority is exclusive. No other book is God's word like this. Not the Apocrypha, not the Book of Mormon, not the Quran. When you give other books like that equal status with the Bible, you marginalize and demean the Bible. That marginalizes the Bible because it doesn't adequately emphasize it, and it demeans the Bible because it can contradict it. For example, Roman Catholicism gives the Apocrypha and some church tradition and papal pronouncements equal or even greater status than the Bible. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints gives the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, that's another book, and the Pearl of Great Price, that's another book, and statements by its prophets equal or even greater status than the Bible. The uh, uh, religion of Islam gives the Quran superior status to the Bible. And I can, I can multiply examples here, but the point I'm making is that uh, when you don't adequately emphasize the Bible, you're not, you're not treating it as all the special revelation you need to know and trust and obey God. We don't need additional revelation to supplement the Bible or to supplant the Bible. Such additional revelation is not God-breathed and thus is neither inerrant nor infallible. So it's not surprising that such additional revelation contradicts the Bible in many ways. So the Bible is enough. It's sufficient. Number five, the Bible is understandable. So a common saying is that the Bible is like a, a deep, broad body of water, shallow enough for a lamb to wade in and deep enough for an elephant to swim in. Uh, not everything in the Bible is equally clear. Even Peter acknowledges that there's some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, right? There's some parts of Scripture that are difficult to understand, but the Bible's central message about God's saving work throughout history is easy to understand. It's clear. It's basic storyline of, of God's creating the earth and mankind falling and then Christ redeeming his people and then there's the consummation at the end. That, that storyline is, is clear enough for a child to understand. It's accessible. It doesn't mean that we understand everything in the Bible to its fullest possible degree. In this case in point, can a child understand the first sentence in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1. Can a child understand that? Yeah. Uh, can a child grow in understanding? And when, you, when a child becomes an adult, uh, can that understanding become deeper and broader and wider? Yes. See, what I'm, what I'm saying is we can know something that's true without necessarily having to know it omnisciently like God does. We can know things truly and for real. That doesn't mean we have to know them absolutely. And the Bible is, its message, its central message, is clear enough for a young person to know it truly. We can know the Bible truly. It is clear. And you might be thinking, well, if we can, if we can understand the Bible clearly and truly, then why don't all humans completely agree with each other on everything the Bible teaches? And the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with us. We're finite and we're sinful. Were it not for the effects of the fall on our head and our hearts, we would interpret the Bible the same way. But the, the point I want to stress here is that the Bible's central message is clear. And finally, number six, the Bible is essential to know God. It's necessary for us to know and trust and obey God. You must somehow hear the Bible's message, whether you're reading it yourself, you're hearing someone else read it or explain it, for you to become a Christian. You need to hear the words of God to become a Christian. The, first, the, the sentence right before 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the sacred writings were able to make you wise through faith in Christ Jesus uh, for, for salvation. 
Romans 10 says faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You have to hear that message about Christ. So that's what the Bible is. It's, it's, it's God's word. It is God-breathed. It's entirely true. It's authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary. And when we talk this way about the Bible, we may have to deal with some objections to this. Um, I'll deal with just three popular objections that people have to this view of the Bible. So the first objection is you are guilty of bibliolatry. That means you worship the Bible. And the response is, no, we don't worship the Bible. We worship God alone, but we esteem the Bible as a unique book because God actively communicates through it. To disobey the Bible is to disobey God himself. A second popular objection is you derive your doctrine of the Bible from the Bible. So isn't that circular reasoning where you, you go there, go there, it's just go around a circle. You, you, it, it's circular reasoning. That, that's the, the charge here. And the response is, uh, yeah, uh, that, that, that's true, but that doesn't necessarily invalidate the reasoning. So stick with me here. Our doctrine of the Bible is no more circular than scientific theories. Everyone uses circular reasoning to defend ultimate authority for beliefs. So while our ultimate authority, our ultimate standard of truth is God and his word, for most others it's something else, usually themselves. So the debates about whether the Bible is God-breathed and without error really come down to this, this one issue. This is what it hinges on. Do you accept what the Bible claims about itself? Do you accept what the Bible claims about itself? There are many useful arguments that show that the Bible's claims are reasonable, so you can look at its historical reliability and fulfilled prophecies, but ultimately God's Spirit must convince us that its claims are true because sin has distorted how we perceive reality. We can't prove that the Bible is God's Word by appealing to any authority other than God Himself and any, any authority beside the Bible itself. If you do that, you'd have to appeal to an authority other than God, and there isn't one. Here's a third objection. The Word, capital W, so that's Jesus, is what matters, not the Word, lowercase w, the Bible. Jesus matters, not the Bible. And response is, as pious as that sounds, it takes a different view of the Bible than Jesus himself Jesus repeatedly quotes the Bible as wholly trustworthy and the final authority. So that's what the Bible is. It's, it's God-breathed. It is inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, clear, and necessary. Now we're ready to transition to our second question. So we start, what is the Bible? Now, how should we treat the Bible? And I'm going to quickly suggest seven ways. First is believe the Bible. Believe the Bible. Why? Because the Bible is completely true. So believe it. To disbelieve the Bible is to disbelieve God. If we trust God, we'll trust whatever he says. Number two, love the Bible. Love the Bible. Why? Because you love God. And we don't worship the Bible. We worship God who communicates to us in the Bible. So we not only trust that whatever God says is true and right, we love his words, all of them, even the ones that are unpopular in our culture. Uh, my mentor, Don Carson, uh, told me this story. He was, he was counseling this couple, uh, his marriage counseling, and they were wrestling with whether the Bible teaches that a husband is the head of his wife and a wife uh, should submit to her husband. And they, they came into the counseling uh, just kind of objecting to that, that view. And after looking at passage after passage, uh, the couple said something like this. 
all right, we concede, the Bible teaches that, but we still don't like it. And Carson said, you're halfway there. You're halfway there. Meaning, it's good to believe what the Bible says whether we like it or not. It's better to love it. It's better to see it how God sees it. It's better to have our hearts aligned in delight with what God's word teaches. So do you love God's words? All of them? Even the ones that are counter-cultural right now? I'll mention just three that are unpopular in our culture right now. Do you love what the Bible says about Jesus being the only Savior, the exclusive way to God? Do you love that? Can you rejoice in that? Do you praise God for that? Do you love what the Bible says about God's creating humans as biologically male and biologically female? Do you see that design and think God knew what he was doing and that's beautiful and we rejoice in that? Do you love what the Bible says about God's creating sex for one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage and only there? Does that, is that something that you delight in and you love? I go on and on. But what I'm trying to test is, do you love all of God's words, even the ones that are unpopular in our culture? Listen to the opening line of the book of Psalms. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That's where his delight is. He loves the law. So let's look at how the, the psalmist loves God's words in Psalm 119. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I'll lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I'll meditate on your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. That's what our affection should be like toward the Bible. Do you love God's words? If that's not the case, then we've got a heart problem. We can become satisfied with lesser things that dull our senses to greater pleasures. We can be so distracted with lesser things. We might even think of the Bible as boring. Do you think of the Bible as boring? It's as if we can settle for eating weak old donuts and stale Doritos all day long instead of feasting on foods that I love like grilled chicken and pan-seared salmon and freshly baked sourdough bread and fresh fruits and that kind of stuff. Uh, why settle for scrolling through social media when we can feast on God's words? Number three. Submit to and obey the Bible. Submit to and obey the Bible. Why? Because the Bible has the authority of God himself. Your attitude about what the Bible says reveals your attitude toward God himself. So if you disregard God's words in the Bible, you're disregarding God himself. It's that serious. We don't, we don't get to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we follow and which parts we ignore or discard. 
So imagine this situation. Uh, I've got four daughters. It's, imagine I say to my, my oldest daughter, uh, Kara, I'm going to take your, your mom on a date, and uh, we'll be back in a little while. I'd like you to serve the children dinner. I left some instructions on the fridge. Bye. So she looks on the fridge, and it says, Kara, uh, after, after you serve dinner, please put the dirty dishes in the dishwasher, wipe the counters, and sweep the floors. Imagine if she were to say, I don't have to obey those words. That's just words on a page. I have to obey my daddy, but not those words. What would you say? I'm grateful she would never say this, but if she were to say this, we would be right to point out, no, no. Those words on the page there have the authority of your daddy himself. To disregard those words is to disregard your daddy. And it's the same with the scripture for us. Those are God's words that carry the authority of God himself. One of the, 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 the metaphors the Bible uses for us in Scripture is that we're slaves. We are slaves of Christ. And thank God we're slaves of Christ and not slaves of sin. And Christ is our benevolent master. Christ is our master. And so a characteristic of God's people is that we respect and submit to and obey whatever he says what he says is true and for our good, even if we don't fully understand how and why. Number four, be grateful for the Bible. Why? Because we don't deserve it. It's only by God's kindness, because of his great mercy, that he communicates to us at all. And further, it's unusual in the history of the world to have such easy access to so many outstanding translations of God's words in a language we understand. This contrasts our current situation with that of so many other people throughout history and even alive on earth today. Some people have not and, and still do not have a translation of the Bible in their own language. Some people don't have an accurate an understandable translation of the Bible in their native language. Now, how many good contemporary English translations do we have? Uh, my six favorite are the ESV, NIV, NASB, CSB, NET, NLT. I consult them regularly and many others. Some people don't even have access to a Bible. How many Bibles do you own? I just tallied them up. I tried to. I, it's hard for me to know because I own some in print, some in Logos Bible software, some are PDF, some are audio Bibles. But as best I can tell, I've got 115 English Bibles, 58 Greek New Testaments, 22 Hebrew Old Testaments, 29 Greek translations of the Old Testament, 5 Latin Bibles, 22 modern language Bibles, and 10 audio Bibles in English. That's 260 Bibles. That's embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> it's, we have un paralleled access to the Bible today. How grateful are we? Do we even recognize the riches we have? Number five, read the Bible humbly. Why? Because the Bible teaches and reproves and corrects and trains us in righteousness. So we need that teaching and reproof and correction and training. The Lord says in Isaiah 66, 2, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is of a contrite spirit and is, is humble and trembles at my word. That should be our posture as we read scripture. Read it humbly. These are words from God. Number six, read the Bible carefully and 
prayerfully. Why? Because the Bible reveals God and his ways and because there's no other book like the Bible. In one sense, we should read the Bible like any other book. It has human authors who wrote in various styles of literature, and we should do our best to understand what the authors intended to communicate. Yes, yes, yes. But we shouldn't read the Bible merely like any other book because it's unique. It's God-breathed. Here's how our church's elder affirmation of faith puts it. The process of discovering the intention of God in the Bible, which is its fullest meaning, is a humble and careful effort to find in the language of Scripture what the human authors intended to communicate. So why is this so hard? Limited abilities, traditional biases, personal sin, and cultural assumptions often obscure biblical texts. Therefore, what do we need? The work of the Holy Spirit is essential for right understanding of the Bible. That's why we pray. Prayer for his assistance belongs to a proper effort to understand and apply God's word. So we pray with the psalmist, open my eyes that I may see, behold, wondrous things out of your law. That's our heart cry as we come to scripture. Carefully reading the Bible is worth devoting your life to. I don't say that just because I'm a professor who does this full time. I'd say this if I weren't a professor. If you want to go deeper here, there are hundreds of resources available to you. You could start with a good study Bible, like the ESV study Bible or the NIV biblical theology study Bible. Those are my two favorite. There are many more. And there, there's a, I even wrote a book called How to Understand and Apply the New Testament, and every chapter ends with this long list of annotated resources that will help you go deeper in all these different areas of, of trying to understand the Bible. There's so much available to us. We have a bookstore you could peruse. There's much to get there. Go deep here. Carefully, prayerfully read Scripture. Number seven, read the Bible routinely. Read the Bible routinely. So our high view of Scripture won't matter much, if we don't actually read the Bible. This is, this is a sticking point for some of us. I've been building up to this point, and I'm going to press in right here because I'm, I'm guessing this is where we could need some, some motivation. So I'll address two excuses people give for not reading the Bible routinely. Excuse number one is, I don't have time. I don't have time to read the Bible. So if that's you, I would respectfully ask you a question. Are you wisely stewarding the time that God gives you? We all have the same amount of time. No one is richer in time than others. We all have the same amount. Are you stewarding it wisely? It's common for literature and productivity to present this four-quadrant time management grid. So let me explain this to you. So quadrant one, it's something that's important and urgent. So it's immediate, important, deadline. Number two, it's important, but it's not urgent. So you got long-term strategies and development go there. Third quadrant, it's not important, and it's urgent. So these are time-pressured distractions. And then fourth, it's not important, and it's not urgent. So it's what you might do when you take a break from urgent and important activities. Now, if you're typical, where do you want to spend most of your time? Right here, quadrant two. But if you're typical, where do you actually spend most of your time? Right here, quadrants one and three. What is urgent dictates what you do. And then when you're just tired from all this urgentness dictating what you do, you may resort to quadrant four to unwind and perhaps unwind by consuming social media candy like a really interesting cat video 
or a feel-good news story or so-called breaking news about a celebrity you don't even care about. So social media can be this magnet that pulls you into quadrant four and keeps you longer than you ever intended to stay. And that's why productivity gurus will emphasize that you should do important things first. So one of these gurus would teach a seminar, a big table and a big clear cylinder and a pile of big rocks, medium-sized rocks, little rocks, and sand. And the, the point is the only way you can get all that stuff into the cylinder is to start with the big rocks and move down in, in, in sequence to the sand. And the way that applies to our lives is when we want to get a lot done, including things that matter most, that we think are most important, we have to start with the big things, the big rocks. And I would argue that reading the Bible is one of the big rocks in your, in your life that you should start with. It's, it's, it's one of the big rocks because you must keep hearing the Bible to grow as a Christian. You need to hear it. You need to hear it preach. You need to read it. You need to study it, memorize it, meditate on it, apply it. You need the Bible spiritually, just like you need food and water physically. It's even more important than that. Can you say with Job, I have treasured the words of your mouth, God, more than my portion of food. The Bible is necessary also for more than just survival. It's necessary as an infallible guide to navigate life wisely. The psalmist asks, how can a young man keep his way pure? Answer, by guarding it according to your word. We need the Bible, not just to survive spiritually, but to, to live wisely. So if you really believe that the Bible is important, that reading it is important, it should be part of your daily routine. I believe that. It's one of the big rocks. And if you need help doing this, maybe your life is just a mess right now. It's like when you preach on giving and people are in debt. You have to first help them get out of debt so that they can give generously. If your life is just a mess right now and it's hard to keep track of your time, here's what I recommend to help you just get on track. It's a book by Tim Challies called Do More Better, A Practical Guide to Productivity. Super clear, short, easy to understand. My, my single favorite book on productivity. It will help you so that you can be a good steward of the time God gives you. Here's excuse number two. First was I don't have time. Second is I don't feel like reading the Bible. I don't feel like it. Maybe that's you. I don't feel like reading the Bible every day. That's why I don't do it. Well, we often don't feel like doing what we should do. If you have children, have they ever not felt like doing their homework or cleaning up a mess they made or doing chores? Yeah, and, and part of responsible parenting is shepherding them to take responsibility. I don't always feel like umpiring squabbles between my children, but faithful parenting entails that I discipline fairly and consistently. I don't always, well, actually I do always feel like going to work. You might not, you might not always feel like going to work, but when, if that's you, if you don't feel like going to work, what, what does a responsible adult do? He goes to work. Thank you. And today, sometimes that means staying home and doing it on Zoom. But still, you, you, you go to work unless you're, you're sick and you can't. You, you do what you're supposed to do. You fulfill your responsibilities. I don't always feel like keeping a disciplined plan for strength training and eating and sleeping, but this is new for me. I've consistently been doing this for about three and a half years now, and it's now ingrained into my routine to the point that it's automatic. So when I wake up, I don't deliberate, hmm, what am I going to do this morning? I've got a routine. It's, it's Monday. I know, I know what I'm doing this morning. I just do it. But it takes time to get to that point, to make something routine. And, and in that process, you can grow to enjoy more and more having that routine. Uh, I know 
for example, in this case, it's good for me, I'm feeling better, it's improving my health and my, my, my energy level so that I can serve others better. Similarly, with Bible reading, when you wake up, are you debating, should I read my Bible this morning? Or is it routine? So I've been reading the Bible routinely since I was about 14 years old. That's the year that I first read through the Bible cover to cover. And by God's grace, it's just routine. I don't ever wake up and think, hmm, should I read the Bible this morning? I just get up and I do it. And I can't imagine not doing it. It's routine. It's part of a pattern. It's a healthy habit. It's a lifestyle. That's where we want to get with this, this discipline. Uh, and and I, I speak of it that way as a discipline because it's a pattern. It's a routine. It's a habit. And we have to fight for joy with it. That's the whole point of this. It's not to accumulate more data in your brain. That's not why, I, why I'm exhorting you to read the Bible routinely. We exist to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And we most satisfy, excuse me, we, we, we most glorify God when he most satisfies us, right? So if that's the case, we want to do activities that satisfy us with God himself. And reading the Bible is one of the primary ways that God satisfies us with himself. That's why we read it. Reading the Bible is a way for us to enjoy God. It's a spiritual discipline, a means of grace that God has designed to satisfy us with God himself. So you might be thinking, all right, you convinced me. How do I do this? Now, this is no longer straight Bible. This is just suggestions, okay? My attempt to wisely suggest how to do this. Four suggestions to add Bible reading into your routine. Number one, start small. Something is better than nothing. So you might not be able to run a marathon today. Could you walk one lap around the track, just a quarter mile? Start small. Maybe it's you read the Bible five minutes a day. Second is choose a feasible plan. There are so many to choose from. There's one at biblereading.christkirk.com that many in our church are doing right now. It's called the 2020-2021 Bible Reading Challenge, and you can jump in at any time. Don't worry about getting behind. My wife's doing it with some other women. Uh, I think Pastor Stephen and uh, Tom Dodds are also doing it. Uh, so that, that's one option. Uh, if you want to see other plans, you could just Google uh, this article, Reading the Whole Bible in 2016, an FAQ by Justin Taylor. Fantastic article. And he's got dozens of options for different Bible reading plans. Uh, so that's one option. Follow a reading plan. Another it's to listen to an audio Bible. You're like, is that allowed? Yeah, yeah, there are like rules here. Uh, so I've been doing this for the past several years, and I love it. So this is my routine. I don't know when I started this. I might be going on four or five years. So I wake up, and the first thing I do each morning, I pull out my phone, open up the Audible app, and hit play. So it just starts off where I left off last time. So I just listen through the Bible over and over, and just I keep going through different translations, different narrators. I love it. Uh, so that's my routine. I also do other specialized study in different portions, uh, but, but that's, that's my routine. And you can take in bigger chunks and keep the big storyline uh, in, in view as you go. The, the drawback of that is you don't pause as much and, and make connections. So th- there's not one right way to do this, uh, but it is one way. Here's, here's another, is to study a portion of Scripture in depth, kind of like the opposite of listening to the, an audio Bible straight through. So this is, you might study the Pentateuch in a whole year or Isaiah over a whole year or Romans in a whole year. And what you're doing is going slowly, reading repeatedly, maybe different translations repeatedly, bringing in other study, study helps like study Bibles and even commentaries. There are so many ways to do this. There's not just one right way. What I'm exhorting you to do is just read, read and do it daily. Third suggestion, stick with it. Stick with it. So set aside 
just a small block of time every day to read the Bible and don't miss it for 100 straight days. Try that. On average, it takes about 66 days for a behavior to become automatic. So what I'm exhorting you to do is develop a routine where reading the Bible becomes an automatic behavior for you every day. And you might think, eh, I'd rather do it sporadically, like, you know, read a big chunk on Sunday afternoon, and then, if I can, along the way the rest of the week. I would suggest that it's more healthy to do smaller chunks every day and then sporadically do bigger chunks in addition to that. Just like if someone said, yeah, I think I'll have a big meal every Sunday afternoon once a week. I think I'll be enough. I don't think so. I think you're going to get kind of hungry. So I'd recommend eating a little bit every day routinely and then add in some feasts along the way, like read the Gospel of John in one sitting on a Sunday. And then finally, number four, read with someone else in your church. Team up with a friend or a group of friends in your church and be accountable to each other as you read. So those are four non-inspired, fallible suggestions. All right. So what is the Bible? Question number one, it's God-breathed. It's entirely true. It's our final authority. It's enough. It's understandable, and it's essential to know God. And our second question is, so how should we treat it? Believe it, love it, submit to and obey it, be grateful for it, read it humbly, read it carefully and prayerfully, and read it routinely. With God's help, you can consistently read the Bible. There's no substitute for this. There is no substitute for reading the Bible over and over. It's what feeds you. It's what sustains you. It's what grounds you to reality. It's God's words for you. Let's pray and respond in song. Father, thank you for revealing yourself to us in the Bible. Please increase our trust in you, increase our love for you, increase our obedience to you, increase our gratefulness to you. Please give us grace to read your Bible, this Bible you gave us, humbly and carefully and prayerfully and routinely. And please continue to satisfy us with yourself for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.